I'm Kurt Bloom, a podcaster and property investor, and this is the Say Yes podcast, where I will talk with people who said yes to a change, to a new beginning. Are you one of them? Hello, everybody. Today, I have a talk with a guest who is a lawyer, a legal consultant, and uh, you can listen to him as a speaker at many wealth and sustainability conferences. Recently, he sold his company and he enjoys his life in the Middle East. My guest is quite an adventurous person who was a professional diver. He traveled to North Korea, worked for the Red Cross, and he wrote a book about diving. Welcome, Urs Stirnimar. How are you? Oh, thank you. Very kind. And thanks for those very kind introductory words, Kurt. That's really appreciated. Welcome. Are you not searching Easter eggs and chocolates in the garden? Well, not really. And for the chocolates, of course, it's a little bit problematic because if you hide them somewhere outside, perhaps <laughs> you will just find them in a melted stage and that perhaps wouldn't be the best. You're right. You're in Dubai. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us in short about a day in your life as a retired person. Uh, I just can't believe that you are not working anymore. Well, I wouldn't say that I'm really retired because I'm not really in the law firm anymore, but I still have many, a lot of commitments. I am still very much involved in the Swiss Business Council, which has about 300 members in Dubai. I'm very much involved with the Owner Association of the Swiss Tower, which has about 1,500 people in it. So there's quite a, a lot of things to do. I'm also with the Rotary Club since many, many years which I'm dedicated to attend and uh, support. And then I have some other small companies which I am looking after. So I'm still quite a bit busy, so you don't have to worry. <laughs> you can imagine, yeah. What about in Europe? You have also some advisory at uh, advisory boards or? In Europe, uh, well, not really, but I very often ask from people from Europe who would like to set up things in the Middle East. And since I have uh, extensive experience, 17 years in Dubai and another eight years in other Arabic countries. So they quite often ask me about some support, some advice in general, and that works quite well. Okay, yeah. You know, for me, if I hear legal consultant or lawyer, that, that sounds so boring, but can you tell us what, what are the most fascinating moments as a legal consultant? Well, the word legal consultant sounds uh, quite nice and good, but mm -hmm. here in the UAE, there are even some people who say there isn't, or when I came here in 2004, some people said, hey, well, there's no real law here. And after 17 years here, I realized that, well, it's very flexible. That means every day the things change, every day it goes a little bit different. So also when you come to my law firm, it's not a typical setup where you have walls and walls full of books because uh, those don't really help a lot. Uh, the best is always to ask, hey, how did they handle things yesterday or, or today? So that you have a little bit of an indication how it will be handled tomorrow. Then as well as legal consultant here, you're not an advocate. You don't go to court. To court only Emiratis can go. The whole thing is then also in Arabic. And what we do is mostly what I did with the law firm, which I set up. We did and helped above all Europeans who set up companies. So we did the company incorporation. We assist them with all their legal issues they had. We did also investment fund setups. 
And we do a lot now these days, we do a lot of uh, wills because here, of course, we in the Middle East, in Arabic country, in a Muslim country, Sharia law applies. This is uh, Sharia law is above all a matter which uh, is of importance in case of inheritance because in case of inheritance, it would mean if Sharia law applies that if I pass away, part of it goes to my parents, part of it goes to my brothers, part of it goes to my wife and the children, a daughter only receives half of what the son receives. This of course all makes sense especially made sense perhaps a few hundred years ago. These days, it's a little bit difficult for a non-Muslim to understand that. And thanks God, since 2015, it's possible in the UAE to have a so-called uh, will set up by, in the Dubai International Financial Center, which follows then common law standards, and where you have testamentary freedom, which of course makes it a lot, a lot easier and better for people. This is also an issue for concerning custodian and guardianship for children, because if I would pass away, then the children, of course, the mother is supposed to look after them, but the real uh, uh, guardian will then perhaps will be my brothers. Perhaps my brother are living in New York or somewhere in the world, perhaps never have seen those babies or those children. So that, of course, will be a little bit tough. And all this you can sort out with a DIFC bill. So that's definitely recommended for everybody. Yeah, okay. Interesting. And uh, when you came to Dubai, you had to study the law, the UAE law or Sharia law? How does it work? Well, as I mentioned before, the law thing here is a bit uh, reduced. And what I did above all is setting up companies. So I set up hundreds of companies for clients from mostly from Europe. And there the Sharia law doesn't apply okay. only very remotely. So the whole thing is just about setting up companies and thanks God to all the companies I've set up. They never had any issues with legal issues. So they never really needed a lawyer. They just needed uh, somebody who knows how to set up companies. And this of course, I got more and more uh, acquainted with it. And I had very good uh, staff members who were expert and quickly adapted to the surroundings and the knowledge of the UAE. And therefore, we became quite an important or well-accepted firm, well-accepted and respected by our clients. Okay. And you need also to have uh, some Arabic stuff or at least one. Well, we have uh, some Arabic stuff here. Yeah. They definitely help. It helps you, especially, I mean, if we receive something written in Arabic, then we can quickly give it to the person. She quickly can have a look at it and immediately tell us what it is about. And we don't have to need to give it to a translator. Anyway, a big, big change thanks to Google. Google Translate, uh, this helps already a lot just to quickly to get an impression so that you know more or less what the hell what it is about. And then if it's necessary, you still can go for a real translation. And if you submit something to the court, you definitely need to go through a good uh, translator. Because sometimes I made a test. I gave an English text to somebody to translate into Arabic. And then I gave it to somebody else to translate it back from Arabic to, into German. And <laughs> somehow it was like in this one, I said, okay, it is yes. And then the one who translated backwards said, well, I said no, which <laughs> shows a little bit, it's a tough thing. And, and legal matters very often is a, where you need to use the word, the language quite uh, 
expertly. You can't just mm. say, that's it. You always say a little bit in the gray zone, well, this applies <laughs> to a certain extent. So it needs a good translation and that definitely needs an, uh, lawyers which are accepted and approved by the court system here. Okay, yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> I hope you had never these kind of problems uh, during your time because of the language, uh, the difference. No, we never had any issues. I mean, we all saw it. The problem was never the language, no. Okay, yeah. So, Urs, uh, beside your job as a legal consultant, I would say you are very much an adventurer. I believe you were a diver, right? And you wrote a book and... Can you tell us more about your inspiration to write the book and a little bit the background about this diving? Um, yeah, time? yeah, the, that's definitely something very, very important in my life. I started very early with about I was into swimming, water I always liked. I'm coming out of the mountains in Switzerland, so it's definitely not at the sea. We didn't even have a lake directly there, but I was very much in inspired by the books of Jacques Cousteau from France or Hans Haas from Austria about their adventures and all their explorations. Started, so I was very much into it. And with 14, I started uh, learning to scuba dive. And then I was assisting during my high school times. During summer times, I had the, ple the pleasure and honor and the possibility to assist on a Swiss diving school in the Isola Elba in Italy. And then I was reading books in all kinds of languages. I mean, French, French, in English, in Italian, and in German, of course, as well. And interestingly enough, when I was 18, I read a book which was translated from French into German, a diving book. And there were quite a lot of mistakes in it. And so I wrote to the Nymphenburger Publishing House in Munich in Germany mm -hmm. and told them, look, uh, there are quite a few mistakes in this book. And then at the end of the book, I wrote, well, if it's necessary, if you want, I could assist and write the book, uh, avoiding all these problems. And I was 18 years old, but of course the receiver of, the book, of that letter didn't know that I'm only 18. And I wrote, well, if you need one, I can write the book. And they wrote back and said, yeah, why not? Why, well, could you perhaps write something about it? Then I wrote a book about 120 page uh, a guide how to learn to dive. And it became quite successful. I sold, I think, about 10,000 copies. I mean, the whole thing was sold. And uh, it was then published. Uh, I mean, I wrote it when I was 18 and published then in when I was uh, 20, 1975, it was published. So it was, uh, I, I was very, very proud, of course, that this happened. And it also helped me then to be diving instructor in Kenya, in Seychelles, during my studies of economics and law in Switzerland, Zurich. I had uh, one of the largest diving schools during my study times. And with those divers, my students, I had the chance to go traveling and dive in the Red Sea, in the Caribbean, in the Mediterranean. And of course, also all the time in the Swiss lakes, yeah. Called Swiss links, no? <laughs> it is called, but I uh, do have to say the Swiss lakes, they also have a certain charm and visibility in the Swiss lakes is uh, quite good these yeah. days. And uh, it is quite astonishing how interesting it can be. You still uh, going uh, for diving? Yeah, I still go a bit of diving. Um, 
that's I sh- always when I go on vacation, I try and see that I can dive in those locations. Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. And uh, as th- that was your first passive income then with uh, 18 or 20 years old with the book. Yeah, that was quite impressive. The book was sold for one German mark, or let's say perhaps it was, let's say, one euro. And uh, I got 10% of it. So I got one euro, one German mark, and uh, 10,000 copies. That means 10,000 uh, German mark, or let's say the euros. And that, if I, it took me about one month to write it. Of course, then they were sold over a period of about 10 years. But nevertheless, it was quite uh, interesting, and especially about all I was proud that I had the chance to write the book in, with such a young age. Of course. Uh, I remember I got once a book from you many, many years ago. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I read <laughs> That's it good. a long time ago. Yeah, I remember. Wow. Yeah. Super. And Thank you. <laughs> as far as I know, you worked also for the Red Cross in different countries. Tell us a little bit more about this. I'm very much uh, interested to, to hear about your engagement with the Red Cross. Yeah, so through diving, I had the chance to get to know the world quite a bit. I was uh, in, the med- in the Middle East and was all in the Caribbean, Mediterranean diving. And then when I finished my studies, finally, as uh, with law, then I worked for a short time in a law firm in Switzerland, in Zurich. But doing and assisting with divorces was not so interesting. And uh, then I was looking around and found in the NZZ in the newspaper of Zurich an advertisement for the International Committee of the Red Cross that they're looking for delegates to go and visit prisoners in war zones. Now, the International Committee of the Red Cross, an organization, the oldest Red Cross organization, the parent organization of Red Cross movement from 1859, uh, set up in Geneva, then was only visiting such prisoners. So I had then, I was, I had possible to join them and was sent to to Lebanon in 84 and stayed there for two years. At that time, in Lebanon, the South was occupied by Israel. In the rest of the country, the Syrians were. And we from the Red Cross visited the prisoners of war, if you want to call it that way, from Israel, which were in the South. And there was a camp with about 5,000 or so prisoners, and we regularly visited them. And we also did some distribution of food in certain areas, some medical assistance. It was definitely a very, very interesting time where I had the chance to live in a country, a country which goes through a war situation. That was an interesting experience. Above all, the interesting experience for me was always, there's a war. Of course, it's a terrible situation, but how the people try to have, try to adapt and try to have kind of a normal life to survive and have business idea, try to make always the best out of it. So how try to survive and not just to cry the whole day long and say, wow, we are in a bad situation. No, they were always trying to do something. There were, there were also parties during that time. You saw how, and that was really impressive to see that. And we from Switzerland, where we didn't have any war, where we were, thanks God, avoided in the war situation of the Second and First World War, that we, I had this chance to go and see that was impressive. And then afterwards, so I was two years in El Salvador, Central America, where we had a conflict with 
situation between the government supported by the US and the guerrillas supported uh, by the communist countries, be that Cuba and Soviet Union. And there we also gave assistance and visited the prisoners. We went to, into the conflictive areas, gave assistance, medical and food supply. Uh, that was interesting. And I was uh, responsible for dissemination. I had to teach and inform the soldiers and guerrilla what is allowed according to Geneva Convention and above all what is of course forbidden, that you cannot attack uh, families, children, and so on, that they all need to be well treated. And that was quite a challenge to do and gave me a possibility to see also all different aspects of that country and uh, Central American general. And also, above all, it gave me the great possibility de hablar español, porque así tenía la posibilidad de aprender español. Oh. So I had a great chance to learn Spanish, and that also was then supported because I got to know my future wife then there in El Salvador, a Spanish lady, uh, not a Spanish, but a Salvadorian lady, yeah. uh, Sandra, where we had a very good life and a son together. So that's a very nice and interesting experience. Wow, yeah. Uh, and, and how can we understand this? Uh, you, if you visit prisoners, you have face-to-face -face meetings, uh, you have a, like a protocol with questions. How does it work? Yeah, so the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, is, is mentioned in the Geneva Conventions. And in there it says that the ICRC has the right to visit prisoners of war and that they has to have the right to visit prisoners of war without supervision by the detaining power. That means mm -hmm. we had uh, visits to one-to-one -one conversations and very important, of course, uh, there shouldn't be a guardian just next door or just next to it, listening to it. And because the prisoner will never say, well, I was treated badly. If somebody is listening to them, then of course they know if I say I'm treated badly and the Red Cross guy has left, then of course he will be hit by the guardian. So <laughs> that of course is one of the rules that these discussions must be one-to-one -one or maybe also we have group discussions and meetings and see how that they are treated according to the Geneva Convention that they have sufficient food, that they have uh, washing possibilities, that there are bathrooms and all this and there we, of course, it's always a bit of fight with the detaining power to see that they really have to follow these rules and that it's in for their advantage as well that they follow the rules and violating the Geneva Convention doesn't bring any big advantage. No? That gives you perhaps a, a, an advantage for a short while, but for the longer term, it doesn't really help at all in anything. Okay. And how, how long does it take then, uh, like for one person, such a talk? More than 15 minutes? Well, such a talk can be perhaps uh, one hour, two hours, half an okay. hour. Then also these prisoners of war, for example, in the prisoner camp in Ansar, we went to see them every week. So it, it's not necessary every time to speak with all 5,000. You just spoke mostly then with the new ones which came in. And with the other ones, you just had general discussion and so that. And, and then you also knew in certain prisoner camps, okay, this is the main problem. So it's very difficult for the for the detaining power because they need to supply them with food, with water, with uh, clothes and so on. And very often these countries are also not in the best position to provide all these things because they are perhaps poor countries. I think, for example, in instances in Africa where they went through many very difficult war situations. 
that they didn't, uh, the, the, the detaining powers very often are poor countries. Now it's difficult for them or at the population in those countries was already in a bad situation. So then very often the detainees are also not very much better off. Mm. And is there also possibility that you take, for example, a letter or a gift from the family to the prisoner or vice versa, that they write a letter to the family? Yeah, that is also in the Geneva Convention. It is uh, the letter exchange so that the, the, the detained person can write a letter on those uh, Red Cross notes. And uh, these notes then afterwards are censorized uh, by the detaining power. So they read them and see that it's not written in there. Well, you can get me out of it by by making a hole in the wall or something from outside. <laughs> so, of course, they will check that everything is uh, written in a way that it is not a risk for the detaining power. Then we bring them those things to the, to the families. So there I had the chance to drink a lot, a lot of coffee in Lebanon because perhaps I met 20 families a day then afterwards to distribute all these in different villages get to drive around go to them and of course in each family they're very very kind and very hospitable so that they gave you then always a coffee to drink and uh, something to eat so and then of course you cannot say thank you thank you i have already had four coffees then you had to drink also the fifth the sixth the seventh coffee <laughs> but it was always a very nice experience yeah What kind of uh, skills you need uh, to be such a representative uh, uh, as you were with the Red Cross? Well, in the old days, the Red Cross, which comes from Geneva originally, in the old days, it was mostly people from Geneva. Then they didn't have enough people. Then they expanded it for the, to the rest of uh, Switzerland. At my time, about 90% of the, uh, for the delegates were Swiss people, and our main thing was to say, look, we are neutral, which of course in Switzerland is. So it's of course for a person coming like, for example, from the US, and you're a delegate, and then you go and visit prisoners in a country where the government is supported by the US. Yeah. But then of course, it's a little bit difficult to go and delegate and say, hey, I'm now visiting the detainees, and, uh, Well, I'm American, but I have nothing to do with the American government. That's, of course, sometimes a little more difficult than for a Swiss to say, well, I don't have anything to do with America. Well, I'm eating perhaps at McDonald's and keggy uh, fried check chicken, but otherwise I'm not involved with America. So therefore, it was originally just uh, Swiss people, but now the activities of the International Committee of the Red Cross have expanded a lot, and now they accept uh, delegates from all over the world. Okay. There are also now Americans working there for a situation mm -hmm. where it's just yeah. represent a risk for them. Okay. Yeah. Let's go to a little bit uh, different delicate country. Some years ago, you traveled to, to North Korea with your son. And I think it was uh, around Christmas time, New Year. What interested you most to go there? And can you tell us about your experience? Yeah, so my son, he was studying in the University of St. Gallen, and then he did half a year in a university in South Korea. And then we said, okay, what shall we do over Christmas? And then we said, okay, we could go to China. And then I brought up the proposal, hey, why don't we go to North Korea? 
my son with whom I did quite some traveling in the past to special countries. He said, oh yeah, why not? So we were, we met in Beijing and then we were flying with a group from Beijing over Christmas 2017, I think, mm -hmm. to Pyongyang. And then it went, it's a group. You can only go as tourists in a group. And we were a group of about 10 uh, persons from different countries, but also two Americans in it. And everything is guided by those tours. I mean, you, you cannot go out uh, by your own, by uh, out of the hotel, so that's not allowed. And the guides, of course, they know exactly what they're allowed to say. And of course, everything is great. But it's impressive to be in that country. It's impressive to see it. And it's for me, it was above all a country with a living God, with a living God. And what do I mean with that? There is the ruler, which is Kim Jong-un. And uh, of course, uh, the whole population is very much uh, supportive of him, at least uh, what we hear as tourists uh, when we are there. And there is, for example, uh, the, a newspaper. This newspaper only has uh, four uh, pages. On the front page usually is a, a photo of Kim Jong-un. Mm -hmm. But since he is treated like a god, and of course you cannot just throw away that newspaper, or you cannot even bend the photo of uh, of that news, where the news of the newspaper with the photo on it. So when you buy the newspaper, the lady puts the newspaper very, very carefully together, not to bend the photo of the ruler. So that was impressive. Then also impressive is there are many statues of the father and grandfather of Kim Jong-un, of him, there's no, we didn't see any statues, but the father, five meters up to 20 meters high, you're allowed to take those photos of these uh, statues, mm -hmm. but you're not allowed to make uh, close-ups of the head only, or, or the foot or, or something, so that's not allowed. So um, that is quite clear. And then I we took photos, then I took some photos of my son, who was standing in front of uh, those statues, then I made some photos close up of my son, but the statue was not that was not on it completely, just part of it. And when you leave the country, then they come and check the phone, all the photos you have taken and look at it. And then they said, oh, very bad, very bad. And they found a photo of my son with a part of the of the of a statue in the backs and the background. So I had to say, delete, delete immediately. So I deleted it. They found then about eight more photos like that. My son was already in worrying. That perhaps we will disappear in a gulag, but thanks God we could then pass. And that was in a train from Beijing, from Pyongyang to Beijing, 24 hours a train trip. And then we passed the frontier. And then, of course, if you know it a little bit, then we just pressed the button undelete on the phone and we had all our photos back. So that was a funny experience. You need to know how. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, how, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it is, it, 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 it sounds very interesting, and you have some advice for people. You you experience so many different things: uh, adventure in the Caribbean and Maldives with diving, going to North Korea. What is your advice? People who are sometimes a little bit uh, like worried or think about too much, uh, can you give some advice uh, for people who are worried and fear to travel? Well, that of course is still an issue for everybody to wonder, is that safe, is it not risky and all this, that definitely is something which people need to consider. And uh, we usually just checked and read a little bit about those countries we went to and then we, we took the risk and uh, everything went always fine. 
And I guess, well, for example, what I can say, let's look at the, when, we were, when I was working for the International Committee of the Red Cross, there are always uh, some delegates who, who died in those submissions the Red Cross had. But interestingly enough, they died, the majority of those who died, they died in traffic accidents, not of the war situation. Yeah. So that, of course, comes together. And uh, life, of course, is by definition uh, a life uh, threat. No, I mean, everybody of us will die in a certain way. And I always consider those trips, which I did, that they are, well, that we didn't think the risk was too high. Mm-hmm. Urs, how do you prepare for a new adventure? Uh, can you give us like two or three tips? What is most important if you go into something new? And how you, uh, yeah, how you prepare for it? Well, thanks God. I was always in a position that always new doors were opening, which uh, new opportunities. And I was never, I was always ready. I mean, I, I did certain experiences. I was a bank and I was on the top. I was CEO of a top of a bank. And then I, just left them and started and did two years sabbatical with the Swiss government. And I adapted by learning and studying the situation I go into it and read about the experiences of other people and to use above all common sense. Well, if something is smells risky, looks risky, and you see that other problem, people have problems with it, then well, then just don't do it. And follow the rules which are applying. Don't think that you're now a better person, that you can drive faster than the others that you can do it in a different way. That usually is not the way. Just try to be normal. Common sense above all was the one which helped me a lot in my, my life. You think uh, nobody can like hold you back? If you have something in your head, you go ahead. Yeah, but usually all the things I did, uh, they were all made sense, made sense to me and also to other people. So, and thanks God, I was always supported by my family. They were always open to go to all these different places. They were never say, no, no, we don't want to do it. That is also necessary that you have this openness and that you're willing to experience new things and that to start from scratch. I was starting all these things I did in my life. I always started from scratch, from nothing and I became successful with it, with all of the things I did in the past. Thanks yeah, God, because I had scratch. the opportunity and I was lucky, of course, I was lucky. Not. Start from scratch. Can you tell us uh, your experience when you uh, established a, a bank? Yeah, that was uh, quite interesting. When I was working for Credit Suisse in Bahrain, in Bahrain and afterwards in Geneva, in Geneva looking after South, after South South America, Central America, Latin, uh, Latin America area. And then I was approached by Headhunter who asked me, well, I'm interested in establishing a bank in the Caribbean for a small Swiss uh, Liechtenstein bank. And I said, oh, yeah, of course, I'm very interested. Although I had no idea how to do it. I never established a bank myself. I just was a banker at that time for six years, but uh, didn't really was not a banker banker. And then I went there with my son, who was two years old, with my wife. We went there. We had to look for, for um, offices, for staff members, for the banking software even. And everything became very, very successful within five years. It was a 
a main or a very important part of the banking group I was in. And that was definitely a nice thing to do. And uh, thanks, God, because I had excellent teams um, with me. That means I had to find those uh, staff members, and that was great, and it was a great opportunity. We were in the British Virgin Islands, a small island with only 25,000 people, but about 500,000 companies, imagine. And uh, there were only a few banks, and our bank became very successful, then had, is still there and has a very good reputation. Afterwards, I joined that bank and was the head of the bank in Switzerland. That was a rather boring situation because... Uh, when I went there and had ideas and said, let's do this, let's do that. And for example, in the Caribbean, I was the one starting with the internet, using the internet was very successful. We found huge clients through it. And then in um, Zurich with the bank and people said, oh no, we don't do it like that. Oh no, we don't have it. This, 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 that is different. So that after two years, I was happy to leave and join then the Swiss foreign ministry for a sabbatical. What was the last you joined the Swiss? The Swiss Foreign Ministry. So I was yeah. the Swiss Foreign Ministry. I was then sent uh, to Palestine, the occupied area occupied by Israel. I was in Hebron or Al Khalil, as they call it in Arabic. Hebron or Al Khalil is famous for Abraham, who was buried there 3,000 years ago, the father from the Jewish religion, the Christian religion, and the Muslim religion. And these days, it's always a certain issue between the Israeli settlers there, which are about 500 in a town of 150,000 Palestinians. They are guarded by about 5,000 Israeli soldiers. But of course, it's understandable that there are always certain issues. And I was part of an international organization of Switzerland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Italy, and uh, Turkey overlooking the situation. Then I also had the chance to meet Arafat, meet the foreign ministers of Israel, and speak with all kinds of uh, people. There was interesting situation. Did it help to the people there that we were there? No, not really. There are many international organizations which on paper perhaps look quite interesting and good, but the success rate is very often rather limited or not existent. Yeah, have you have you been again in in Israel in the meantime? Since uh, between UAE and Israel, there is a, a agreement. Yeah, now, now with like the peace agreement. Peace, yeah, with the Abraham Accords, this is very interesting, and I'm very think it's a very great thing that this uh, came now because the peace agreements between Egypt and Jordan didn't really bring any fruit to the people, which somehow mm -hmm. I was also understanding if your father was killed in the war, your brother had issues and so on, and of course you're not so in the mood to have a peace agreement with the other side. As with the Emirates or the Paris Bahrainis, they never had direct issues with Israel, and uh, they are very eager to do business with uh, Israelis, with the Israeli com uh, companies, because Israel is leader in many, many things, where Dubai also wants to, the UAE in general also want to be very active in, in fintech, in blockchain technology, IT, all these things. Yeah. Dubai is very much interested in it and Israel has a lot of know-how in it. So there's a great opportunity for everybody. And that the agri-tech, the water technologies they use in Israel, of course, that is all needed in areas like Dubai, which basically is a, a desert area. Okay, yeah. So when was last time then you were there? 
Well, unfortunately, now I couldn't travel there because now because of Corona. But there are plans, and uh, over Christmas period, there were the area in Dubai was quite full with Israelis. They could walk around with their kippa, all good. People made selfies with them. It was a happy situation, and I do hope that it will continue that way. Great opportunities for Israelis, of course. Many of them would like to have an apartment at the Mediterranean Sea, but they are quite expensive. Yeah. And many are now seeing the opportunity. Well, why don't we have an apartment on the Palm in Dubai or at, at the, one of the borders places mm -hmm. or yeah. coastal areas in Dubai? And here the prices are only one third of what they would pay in Israel. The service is, I would say, a lot better here than they would receive in Israel. Flight time about three and a half hours. So many Israelis see that. Hey, well, why should I travel to Italian islands or Greek islands? Well, I just as well can go to Israel and perhaps even have a company here. There's no tax here. There's only the VAT of five percent. So great, great opportunities. And the law firm which I sold is very much into it and assists anybody who wants to set up something here in Dubai. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, if it comes to homes, uh, either on the Palm or there at the Mediterranean Sea, what is your dream home, Urs? Well, my dream home is always at the place where I'm currently living. So it's not so much that I dream now, okay, now I want to go somewhere. I did quite a lot of my, my life, different things. I lived at the beaches. I had a house, I lived in Lebanon, when I lived in Lebanon directly at the beach, when I lived in the Caribbean, I had a house directly at the beach, we found the to beach in, in uh, Kenya, where I was diving instructor, I lived at the beach, so this doesn't attract me so much in Switzerland, we also are nicely situated since I'm coming from the from Grisant and Graubinden, the mountainous area, so we're very off. At the moment, I'm very happy here in Dubai, the great opportunities we have here. Plenty of people, of course, now during Corona times also see the mm. great advantages and the great leadership is uh, Dubai, the UAE has. And now many do, of course, have home office. For example, my son, he works in Zurich, but has a home office somewhere in the mountains in, in Switzerland. Well, he can do his home office just as well in Dubai. And that many, many people realize now and say, hey, why do I need to do home office just uh, three, four, five kilometers away from my office? I just as well can do it on the other side of the world. I just have to adapt to the working hours and then I can have a good time. So, and now Dubai also has offered the possibility that foreign companies, European companies can send people to do their home office in Dubai, which of course is an excellent idea. Because when people come here, they will stay in a hotel, in apartments, they will buy food, they will go to the restaurants. All this, of course, is great for the social product of the country. And uh, the retirement visa, which they introduced, and people can retire here peacefully, like me at the moment, uh, enjoying the time here. So great, great opportunities. And also vaccination has advanced tremendously. I just was today in a restaurant and I saw all the staff members had a play here, which said, oh, I passed the Corona vaccination. So oh. they now more or less 100% of the staff members in hotels and restaurants are vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And that of course is a gives you as a client, of course, uh, a little bit more assurance to say, well, I feel safer in such an area than in a country where you say, well, 
they have 10% vaccinated now and in two months time, perhaps 20%, yeah. instead of being in a country like the UAE where they do everything to vaccinate people. And I can imagine that soon they will offer that to tourists and say, why don't you come to Dubai? We will arrange that you can have your vaccination on the first day when you arrive and three weeks later when you leave, you get the second shot. That's right. Great. Wow. So yeah. we welcome you back, Kurt, so that you get your vaccine. Yeah, I'm glad as soon as I can come back, I really want to come back uh, at least, you know, for some, some maybe two, three weeks. Yeah. And then later, maybe my business again in, in the UAE. Let's see. Property business. Yeah, and also don't forget, you still have your gallery in the Swiss Tower, you know, the Swiss Tower, which yeah. for many years was the tallest Swiss Tower in the world, which of course is not so difficult because there's nothing tall in Switzerland. But nevertheless, there we had, and the Swiss Tower became quite a famous place. Also, thanks to your paintings, which you put in the lobby area, which made it uh, the entry wise very high class. So many people liked it very much. They said, wow, that's great. And uh, this helped to give a very good reputation to the Swiss Tower. Thanks to you as well, Kurt. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thank you, uh, Urs. So uh, last question. Do you, um, where, where can people uh, connect with you? Um, social media or if they want to contact you, how, where? Well, they always can send me in an email or they can send me an SMS or whatever. I'm not really in social media, so I'm not yeah. a big uh, social media guy that I'm not so much, but you can definitely give all my contact details to anybody sure. who is asking for it. And I can assist them as pointed out, I'm since 2004 in Dubai, in the Middle East. I live in many countries of the Middle East. So I know the area quite well. I know the whole offshore industry case and if people want to know about what, what they could offer and do, please just call me. But I just yesterday, we had just a webinar concerning blockchain, crypto technology, mm -hmm. which is uh, the UAE trying to be very on the front as well as Switzerland, of course, with the crypto valley in Zug area. So here there are plenty of plenty of opportunities and anybody can contact me and I'm pleased to assist. Sure, yeah. And maybe we have someone who is interested to do a diving course with you. <laughs> yeah, who knows? You know, something very interesting as well. When people ask me, well, where is the best place to dive in the UAE? Then I usually say, well, it's about 10 kilometers away where I live. And they say, but where, where? Then they say, well, you can dive in the aquarium of the Dubai Mall. Then people <laughs> say, oh, well, well, that is not really diving. And I say, well, this is diving as anywhere else. But you have the opportunity to see really real sharks just next to you and a real thing, not just a small little thing, uh, fish, but uh, that you see big, big sharks. Mm. And that, of course, is a great opportunity, such an experience. It's not that you do it a few times, but definitely if somebody just comes here, did some diving somewhere in the world, say, wow, I want to experience something special, try it in the Dubai Aquarium. It's definitely a great, great experience. Interesting, yeah, I didn't know. Have you been there then? Not yet. Yeah, but I also can say there in the morning, those diving excursions in the, in the aquarium are cheaper than in the afternoon. Uh -huh. Okay. You know why? Uh, no. Because in the morning, the sharks didn't have breakfast yet. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
we go for the for the more expensive version then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, thank you, Urs. It was so impressive and so interesting to talk with you. And thanks for your pleasure. Time. Always welcome. If I can yeah, assist you in anything, yeah. it's a great pleasure. Again, many thanks for this interesting talk with you and for your time. Thanks a lot. <laughs>